this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters Friday. Get tickets now. Welcome to New Books and Film. I am your host, Joel Cherney. Today, I will be talking with Jennifer Frost. Welcome to New Books and Film. I am your host, Joel Cherney. Today, I will be talking with Jennifer Frost, author of the book, Producer of Controversy, Stanley Kramer, Hollywood Liberalism, and the Cold War. The book was published in 2017 by the University Press of Kansas. While Stanley Kramer was criticized by many reviewers for his message movies and supposed routine directing, Jennifer presents a new look at four of his most famous films. Welcome, Jennifer Frost. Hi, Jennifer. Hello, Joel. How are you? I'm fine. Uh, we were Just before we started recording, we were talking. You are actually in New Zealand, and I am in Kentucky in the United States, and it sounds like a perfect phone call. I mean, not even phone call, better than that. So it's the joys of technology that make this kind of thing even possible. Oh, absolutely. And as an American who has made her life and career in New Zealand, I don't know how I could have done it 30 years ago. <laughs> What's made it possible really is the technology of the last 15 years. Plus, when reading the book, especially like the acknowledgments, and yes, I'm one of those people that reads acknowledgments, mostly because part of my career is as a librarian. And every time I read acknowledgments, especially historical books, it's always usually librarians and archivists who are getting those praises and those introductions. So I was like reading those. And I'm sure that a lot of that was technology that helped. I know you did do visits, but at least being able to get material without actually having to set foot into some places probably is something that's great too. Oh, that's right. And being able to, uh, you know, especially hire researchers in different especially the presidential archives has been invaluable and they just take photos and you know on their phones and send them well yeah and like i say it's it's just one good thing and it's, i think it's many ways it's made for not only better writing as far as more people being able to put books together but it, it's even helped in speaking of film uh, the film industry where nowadays people who have ideas don't have to depend on getting huge amounts of financing and you know the independent the true independent film is is possible out there and, and that's great too yes that is so your book producer of controversy stanley kramer hollywood liberalism and the cold war um you it was just issued, but as you as you pointed out before we started talking, this is something. I mean, it obviously took a while for you to put this all together, but I'm sure it's a topic that uh, took. A, we'll talk about how you decided that this was something you wanted to write about. But before we get more in depth, and we've already talked briefly about your that you are in New Zealand now, but if you could give us a little bit of your background as far as your education and writing and how you came to be in a position to write a book like this. Yes, absolutely. So I received my PhD from the University of Wisconsin-Madison in the U.S. Women's History Program uh, back in the 1990s. And my PhD dissertation, which became my first book, was about the new left and community organizing. And I've always been interested in politics and very interested less in what comes to be called high politics. So, you know, looking at, you know, you know elections and policymakers, but more interested in politics from the bottom up or in cultural arenas. So after I finished the new left book, I wanted to write about conservatism. And that was right when we were getting lots of attention to conservatism. Uh, Alan Brinkley wrote his piece on conservatism saying, you know, why aren't people reading Leo Rebuffo and, you know, these other important historians of conservatism. And I discovered the important conservative, uh, the Hollywood gossip columnist, Hedda Hopper. 
And so my second book was Hedda Hopper's Hollywood, Celebrity Gossip and American Conservatism, and that came out in 2011. And in doing research on Hedda, she was railing against a producer-director, Stanley Kramer, uh, that she used to call that red Stanley Kramer. And of course, we all knew Kramer's films. When I was going through school, we watched Judgment at Nuremberg in our history class. We watched Inherit the Wind in our English class. And even as a young person, I remember seeing his 1971 film, Bless the Beast and the Children, um, as, as a young person in the, in the theaters. So that really drew my attention to Kramer. And I want to know more about him. At the same time, we had Barack Obama elected president in 2008. And there was a wonderful piece in the New York Times, I think by A.O. Scott, saying how Hollywood prepared us for a black president. And he went through and talked about some of the you know, movies, Morgan Freeman being a president, other important African-American actors playing presidential roles, but he also mentioned Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, starring Sidney Poitier in 1967. And so that, too, brought me to thinking about Kramer. So between writing about politics, interested in the left, interested in conservatism, I thought, now I want to write a book on liberalism and the most uh, important, prominent Hollywood liberal of the Cold War era has to be Stanley Kramer. So between all these factors, I dived into his work and films. While you concentrate on four films as part of the book, you also make sure to almost buy quite a bit of biographical information. I mean, Kramer is someone who there's been quite a bit written about. He's got, he even wrote his own memoirs, but you were able to sort of make sure that you were able that you looked at his background to see how best it showed what he did that is correct although i always say i'm not writing a biography it was the same thing with hedda hopper just i think biography has a certain there's a certain impulse there and a certain purpose where you really are trying to understand the person, you know, sort of maybe their psychology, what made them tick, you know, their family background, et cetera. And I have to say, I am more interested in the public side of people. So, you know, what do people do? Uh, you know, what actions do they take? What ideas do they put out into the public sphere? So you're absolutely right. I did trace his biography, certainly at the beginning, and I give some of that at the end. But for example, all three of his wives, I just barely mentioned, <laughs> you know, I just barely mentioned his children. Uh, and so I really am more interested in sort of the career, the politics, the films, and their public impact. And with that, let's talk a little bit about his background, because even though we obviously, you know, the big point with him is his liberalism in Hollywood, and he wasn't obviously the only one, but he was able to do some things that during this period in particular, uh, if you are a liberal in Hollywood, that you were running into possible issues because, which is, you know, he became... Uh, famous who became well known and was working during the you know the 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 Red Scare of the fifties and going you know in that period was part of his career and luckily it did not stop you know he was never blacklisted and he was always able to work but um, part of that I think probably relates to some of the things that you point out with him is that he was one of the first producers and directors in when Hollywood started to go independent and the studio system was starting to break down. That's right. That was really the thread all the way through the book was looking at his liberalism. And I think because of all the new works that we've had on the history of American conservatism over the last couple of decades, we are much more appreciating the difficulty of being in Hollywood during the Red Scare, during the era of the Hollywood blacklist, and you know, not taking it for granted the types of works that we see you know, coming out from 
from liberal uh, filmmakers. And he was a liberal going back, you know, so he was born in 1913. He grew up in New York City in Hell's Kitchen. And he was profoundly affected by the Great Depression and the New Deal. He graduates from college or he's in college during the New Deal, during the election of FDR in 1932. He goes to Hollywood in early 1933. He's a passionate New Dealer. He believes in the rights of labor. He's very committed to civil rights. When Eleanor Roosevelt um, ends up supporting uh, Marian Anderson, who was uh, prevented from singing by the Daughters of the American Revolution, that moment just crystallized his civil rights activism um, and civil rights beliefs. So he is a New Deal liberal, and and really at a young age, he's transformed by the politics of Franklin Delano Roosevelt uh, and the New Deal. So when he gets to Hollywood initially in 1933 as a young graduate of New York University, he's there right in the time when the New Deal's flourishing. There's a popular front, sort of a left liberal coalition that is operating uh, in Hollywood as well as elsewhere in the United States. And he's right there. And very exciting time. It's a time when we talk about the, you know, the cinema of liberal idealism is at the fore or, you know, the cinema of democratic modernism is at the fore in Hollywood. And, uh, you know, these Hollywood New Yorkers, uh, he's, he's part of that group that is such an exciting time. We're also seeing emigres come from Europe fleeing, you know, Nazi Germany. So that is so formative for him. And he learns the industry. He learns all the different trades between screenwriting and, you know, building sets. He learns this editing. Um, he starts to become an assistant producer. And then, of course, as he says, you know, a little thing called World War II comes along. And in 1943, he goes into the military and works for the Army Signal Corps. When he gets out of that his service, and he talks about how important that time was for learning again the you know the trade of filmmaking as well as the fact that film you know can have propaganda purposes or it can be used as a weapon. He used to say he comes back to Hollywood in the post-war period and he's trying to find his way and he ends up forming his own production company with some uh, buddies and friends, including Carl Foreman, who he met in the, in the army. And when they start making movies is exactly that point you're talking about. It's the beginning of the cold war. He forms his first production company in 1947. That's the same year that we see, you know, uh, Truman declare the Truman doctrine and, and Promul the theory of containment. Uh, so it's also when HUEC comes um, and starts to uh, hold hearings about Hollywood communists. So at exactly the moment he's beginning his career as an independent, the Cold War has started. And of course, it just shapes everything that he does uh, for the next decade, really decade and a half. And before we go more in depth on his directing side, he was first known as a producer, not as a director, right? That's right. And he realized that he wasn't going to be able to make his way within the studio system. And as you pointed out, the studio system, of course, is breaking up at that point in time. Uh, and he, But he also knows that the way he's going to be able to do what he wants to do, he's, he has to do it independently. Although he always uh, talked about that his independence was, you know, that he was laughingly called an independent because and as we know from Denise Mann and other scholars of independent filmmakers, it was always quite a circumscribed uh, independence. He still needed to get financing of, from, you know, uh, obviously sources, including the studios, although he also had private uh, funders as well. He needed to rent uh, studio, um, you know, uh, you know, places to film production facilities. He needed a distributor. You, you can't get your independent film, you know, into theaters without a distributor. So, you know, he did have to work within the system. But as you uh, pointed out, he had a measure of independence. Um, the other thing is to do something differently, to have a different kind of product. He and and we can't can't deny the team that is around him. So Carl Foreman, his screenwriter, George Glass was uh, his uh, publicist. So these were young, energetic. 
uh, people who were, you know, coming into Hollywood wanting to make a name for themselves, they seize upon the social problem film as a way to make films that are less expensive and also different from the studio product. They know they can't make a big Western, you know, that with big scenery. They know they can't make a lush musical. Uh, they need to make films that are much more affordable. And the social problem film lets them take on problems that are going on in the society, shoot them in a realistic style, um, often, you know, uh, you know on, on set mostly, but they could also do... Uh, you know, uh, filming, you know, out in out in the real world. And the other real savings is that they could cast no name actors because the films are in a realistic style. They didn't need the big stars. And in fact, he ends up hiring and uh, using in their first big films, people like Kirk Douglas, Marlon Brando. And that lends more realism to the film because you don't know who the star is. And so you're not bringing those other meanings, you know, and your familiarity with these actors and other roles uh, to the film. And you can kind of get into the story. Uh, but it also saved him a tremendous amount of money. So as a producer, he was very good at fundraising. He was very good at those negotiations of bringing all the pieces together. And he's a highly energetic person. And he loved that multiple multiple functions uh, of the producer uh, including publicity including you know talking to exhibitors he really enjoyed that so he was able to carve out that place for himself that let him and his team you know make these films that were a, a different kind of product in hollywood in the late 40s and 50s unfortunately it was that <clears throat> some of those aspects that led him to be criticized by some and that criticism is you know it's part of his uh, i guess his overall career that there were some film critics and other critics who never really thought much of him let's so as a you know there there his career as a producer was more allotted but as, particularly as a director he just there were some critics who just never felt he was very good um that's that's right. And he wins he wins the Falberg Award uh, from the, you know, the, the you know, basically an Oscar for producers in 1962. And, you know, so well recognized for his producing achievements. Uh, and he was considered a creative producer in that he wasn't just, you know, a project manager. I mean, he really got into it. But absolutely, when he starts directing in 1955, his first film was Not a Stranger. He just gets panned for his directing and even the big films. So the films I focus on that I really see are sort of the, you know, the, the Kramer uh, canon um, of the you know, late fifties and early sixties. Many critics uh, criticize his, you know, uh, style of, of directing and the big critics of the sixties, Andrew Saris um, and Pauline Kael uh, lambast him. And in fact, I begin the book by talking about their critique of him because I think that critical, uh, his critical reputation has been so shaped by Kale, um, who said that, you know, he was really his fame or his reputation is based on a series of errors where people think that films that he produced, he had directed and that actually he was uh, not a good director. And Andrew Saris bluntly called Kramer one of Hollywood's worst directors uh, in the 1960s. So, that is that's absolutely true. And so I what I wanted to do was in a way to recuperate that reputation um, and, as a filmmaker and say, let's let's put it in context. Let's look at what's happening at the time. Let's look at the impact that he has, you know, particularly uh, politically, rather than just focusing on the filmmaking itself and the flaws and you know what, what we don't like about it. Plus, he also uh, was criticized by some because his films were so overtly message films. The, the, you know, his most well-known films, he purposely made sure that there were, you know, it was very clear that these were films with a message, and he did not shy away from making that message clear. And there were some who didn't care for that either. That's right. So, you know, that question of is film about entertainment 
um, or is it about sending a message? And, you know, the, there's the famous, I think it's been attributed to Samuel Goldman, you know, that that's famous saying that, you know, you're, if you want to send a message, you know, use a Western Union, right, that that films and popular films are not the place to send a message. Now, he hated that appellation of message movie. And he just would, when anyone asked him, he would reject it because he felt that it was a way to categorize his films and marginalize them and that people wouldn't go to a message movie. But you're absolutely right. His films all had a message or certainly a, a point, uh, a point of view on a contemporary event. And that was something that he you know, would support. And you can see it through the publicity. You can see it through his participation in public debates. Uh, and where you really can see how the messages are going out and being received is in letters to Kramer or in what I used also, which were audience uh, preview audience uh, cards where people would give feedback, you know, at the preview. And you see that audiences are hearing those messages. They are engaging with those messages and they may like them. They may not like them, but they uh, certainly understood Kramer as a maker of message movies. Well, I think it, 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 we were in it. This is clearly a time period as we've been talking about where, I think if there was any time the message films were going to be more popular, it was during this period where, depending on your political views in particular, but also just other things, you wanted something that was going to tell you, you know, try to point, you know, give you some thoughts, something to think about. It wasn't just pure entertainment anymore by this point. Um, we've, we've seen enough by this period that, uh, there's more to it than just pure entertainment that, yes, you can be entertained, but if you give some more information or if you if you have a message or have a point of view that's clear, that's not necessarily a bad thing as far as the movie-going public is concerned. That's right. And, of course, this is – the, you know, I really focus on the Cold War period. So I'm focusing on, you know, the late 40s, the 1950s and the 1960s. And that's absolutely right. So people, when they come to his movies and certainly when they respond to his movies, they talk about um, and critics do this, too. You know, they talk about his moving movies as, you know, the thinking man's producer, thinking entertainment. Um, there's wonderful letters to Kramer in, in the Kramer papers where they say, you know, what? What are you doing? You're making us think. Um, and given the Cold War and given the pressure toward sort of political consensus, uh, toward, you know, not being controversial, you know, he bucks that, you know, certainly by the late uh, 1950s, he makes the defiant ones in 1958. That is about the civil rights movement that has been going on, uh, you know, since, uh, you know, really gathering steam in the 1950s. He makes On the Beach in 1959, and that takes on the issue of nuclear weapons. We're in the midst of a Cold War. We're in the midst of a arms buildup. Uh, he's taking on that issue there. That movie talks about the end of the world due to uh, nuclear war. So, you know, he certainly didn't shy away from those sorts of topics. And he continues that on into the 1960s as well. And then um, besides the four, he, he did not shy away from it because probably one of his most well-known later films, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, had its uh, specific political bent that he wanted to make sure was covered in it. That's right. 1967, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, starring Sidney Poitier, Spencer Tracy, Catherine Hepburn, you know, told the story uh, about uh, an interracial marriage or forthcoming interracial marriage and how the white liberal family, uh, especially led by Spencer Tracy, you know, is coming to terms with it. You know, when that movie comes out in 1967 and Mark Harris has written a wonderful book that includes Guess Who's Coming to Dinner called Pictures at a Revolution. And I I, you know, really draw on him and 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 uh, use him and in, in his work definitely in in my book. And what I thought was so important about that, and many people would agree, is that year 1967 is the same year that the U.S. Supreme Court 
uh, declares uh, anti-miscegenation laws or, you know, the prohibition of interracial marriage to be unconstitutional. And at that point in time, there were 17 states that still had on their books the prohibition of interracial marriage. So when that movie is, is talking about this, this is a very current event. And of course, your right to marry, as we know with, you know, gay marriage, but your right to marry is a civil right. It's a civil, uh, you know, it's a right of citizenship to be able to choose who to marry. And so Kramer very much felt that that issue was part of the civil rights movement and it needed to be dealt with. What's interesting to me about Kramer and, and you know, really getting into a story is that he really never caught a break. <laughs> um, at the beginning of his career as a you know, liberal, you know, during the Cold War, he's lambasted by conservatives and lambasted by the anti-communist right. And then he has this sort of a golden period, I would say, a bit kind of at what I call the turn of the 60s, so that late 50s, early 60s, although, as you point out, still criticized by you know film reviewers for his movie making. Um, and then quite quickly, he then starts to be criticized by sort of the liberal left. Um, and Guess Who's Coming to Dinner is his most successful, profitable film. Um, it wins Academy Awards. Um, uh, and it, it's quite touching because Spencer Tracy dies soon after the filming wrapped. And so it, it, it's really an, an important film in that sense. It's the last movie that he makes at, and certainly last film he makes with Catherine Hepburn, his partner. Um, but he gets much criticized by, at that point, the 60s new left. And so, you know, I sort of feel like he, he never kind of gets a break, really. You know, he's, he's trying to forge a middle road of, of good liberalism. Um, and, you know, he gets criticized on both sides. I think people who were who enjoyed or thought a great deal of the film Loving that came out a couple of years ago about the whole miscegenation cases and the Supreme Court decision might find it interesting to go back and watch Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, which I think you know, to, to get a better sense of, of, you know, you might actually see it as what was going on at the time, even though it was a film, it was right smack dab in the middle of a time period, as you point out, when this was something that was still unusual or that in some places illegal. And I think it's a, an example of how you, some, a current, somebody who watches current films might want to go back and look at a film like that just to get their sense of, of how, how at the time that was so unusual and, controversial. That's right. And Spencer Tracy's a character in the film even says, you know, what you're doing is going to be illegal, you know, in so many states. Uh, and so that, you know, you do see that's still still an, an issue. And in fact, Loving um, won the Stanley Kramer Award uh, as an important social problem film. So, you know, it kind of uh, comes around. But that's the thing about Kramer. He did, you know, in that sort of you know, kind of Hollywood progressive fashion. I mean, he stole many of the topics from the headlines, right? Um, and, you know, the screenwriters he worked with were doing the same. You know, he picked up on contemporary issues. So even early in in his uh, career, those first few films that he makes, one of them is The Men, 1950, that was starring Marlon Brando. That movie grew out of he and uh, his screenwriter Carl Foreman and other uh, colleagues, uh, Kirk Douglas, going to these different uh, homes where men who had fought in World War II, who were paraplegics, were living. And they went on, you know, they went to these uh, places to show The Champion, a 1949 movie that Kramer made starring Kirk Douglas. And so by going to these homes and seeing these wounded soldiers, that gave them the idea for the men, uh, which tells the story of a paraplegic veteran and how he's coming to terms with with that. Uh, so, you know, the very contemporary issues of picking up on civil rights, nuclear war. Um, one of the, of course, very important films, too, is Judgment at Nuremberg that comes out in 1961. And that is talking about Nazi crimes and referring to the Holocaust and how we want to think about uh, what happened at that time. And that dovetailed completely um, with the building of the Berlin Wall, um, as well as the trial of Adolf Eichmann 
in Israel. So he's, you know, constantly sort of hitting these key issues right when people are thinking about them, paying attention to them. And so one of the arguments I make in the book is that his films have an agenda setting function. So that idea that comes um, from thinking about journalism that, you know, these films set the agenda and or help to set the agenda and certainly allow for public discussion to happen that may not have happened Otherwise, I think particularly with On the Beach, you get all sorts of newspaper coverage, letters to the editor, um, you know, that talk about these issues about nuclear arms race and questioning government policy on the, the arms race and this idea of nuclear deterrence. I really don't think those conversations would have happened in that same way without Kramer's films. So let's... Um go back through a little bit on, on the films, uh, the four, like I say, there's four that we, and we more or less talked about them in bits and pieces, but um, partly were these obvious four films for you to decide to, to do? I mean, were there anything in them that you felt, um, well, no, obvious, they, they were obvious for, for what they talked about, but was it reasonably easy to decide that these were, these were the films you wanted to concentrate on? No, <laughs> it, it wasn't reasonably easy in some way because he makes 35 films. And so trying, you know, as a producer director, so trying to decide what to focus on, you know, was was challenging. Uh, but things helped in that Mark Harris's book on Guess Who's Coming to Dinner came out or that included Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. So I thought, you know what, you can read his wonderful book. I'll just do a bit on this. Um, High Noon also had some important books. That was a 1952 movie, uh, a Western that we see as an allegory for, you know, the um, Hollywood blacklist and anti-communism. That too had attention. And then only recently last year had another book come out by Glenn Frankel that is equally wonderful and detailed um, and contextual like Mark Harris's uh, work on guests coming to dinner. So, you know, I felt I didn't need to do that. Now, there were textual studies. So many film scholars had done work on the four films that I really focus on that each gets a chapter. So the defiant ones on the beach, Inherit the Wind and Judgment at Nuremberg. So there's a lot of literature on that, um, on those four films. But I felt a few things. One, those films are considered the Kramer canon, as I mentioned. Uh, they also span that turn of the 60s, so the late 50s to the early 60s, when I see he's dominating Hollywood's political landscape. Uh, you see him, he's being, it's not just with his films, he's being interviewed about all sorts of issues. He's appearing on television. He's writing op-ed pieces. You know, he's a very prominent uh, filmmaker for that time period. And, you know, he's sort of the go-to person. You want an opinion on, you know, politics um, in Hollywood. You want an opinion on the industry. He is one of the people that are gone to during that time period. So I thought that was good. Uh, the other thing about those four films is in the Kramer papers, which are held at UCLA, there's voluminous response from audiences in those papers. So between letters uh, as well as those audience preview cards that are really useful, getting people's opinions right there watching the those movies. That is precious historical evidence. Uh, you know, we often don't get evidence of audience goers. You know, we have great evidence from, you know, the Hollywood filmmakers or from reviewers and critics or commentators. But to get audience members, even if they are self-selected because they're choosing to go to a preview or they're choosing to write a letter to Kramer, even if they're self-selected, it still gives us a sense of how the movies are being received, what interpretations are being given. And those letters aren't all positive. So, you know, the letters on Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, the letters on the Defiant Ones, there's racist letters there. Um, on Judgment in Nuremberg, there's anti-Semitic letters there. So it's not to say everybody's, you know, applauding these films or, or liking his liberal politics. There's very much, you know, kind of hate-filled letters as well. But I think it certainly can give us a sense of how his films are being received. So, so when it came down to it, for those reasons, those became the four uh, that I wanted to focus on. 
So obviously when you're making a film, the first thing you have to figure out is story. And I'm, you know, in these four, we've got at least two that are based on plays. I'm not mistaken. Inherit the Win and Judgment and Nuremberg both started as plays, right? That's right. That's right. So, but Defiant Ones and On the Beach, where did those come from? Because those aren't, I'm not as familiar with those, their background. Right. Right. That that was the other interesting thing was to think about, you know, how do you go from page to screen, right, with all of these, these four films, because they all do have different origins. So The Defiant Ones was an original screenplay, and it's written by a blacklisted screenwriter and his friend who also was of the left, who easily could have been blacklisted and, and wasn't. Um, and so we have that, you know, uh, was an important uh, be beginning sort of using that original screenplay. Um, and then On the Beach was based on a very popular novel uh, by a British uh, um, novelist, Neville Shute. Uh, and then Inherit the Wind was a Broadway play uh, that was, again, quite, quite popular. And then Judgment in Nuremberg actually began as a teleplay. So it was on television. And that also required, you know, obviously some tinkering to bring it to the screen um, or from the television screen to the movie screen. So in each of those cases, you know, certain adaptation uh, strategies had to be used to uh, bring them. He did this a lot when he, as a producer, used already existing uh, pieces. So novels, plays, um, often because and the thinking there was you lower your risk in Hollywood, you lower your risk with the audience if you go with a proven story. Um, and so often he did use novels, a um, member of the wedding, um, or he used plays. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm thinking of, um, uh, yeah, well, anyway, you know, you know, he used plays as well. And I think that was a way to minimize risk, really, too. So the Defiant Ones, um, obviously, as you point out, that was a pretty clear um, point of his related to civil rights. What what was the Defiant? What what was the basic you know the the basic plot of the the reason the plot behind the Defiant Ones? What was that uh, to show that the civil rights aspect of it, of the film? Sure. So this began as an original screenplay called The Long Road, uh, which I actually think is telling. So Kramer's the one who shifted the title to The Defiant Ones, which is also a good title. Um, but it was written by uh, Nedrick Young, who was blacklisted. He had been an actor and he was called before HUAC in 1953, refused to testify and was blacklisted. And he teamed up with his friend Harold Jacob Smith, um, and they they were writing screenplays, wrote this screenplay. Um, and Young didn't use his name because he was blacklisted, so he used a pseudonym Nathan E. Douglas uh, for the screenplay. And they were both of the left. And I one of the things I wanted to do in this chapter was to show that a movie that is ten, tends to be seen as simply sort of um, liberal civil rights actually had some what we would see as sort of leftist uh, political content as well. So Kramer reads the screenplay. He loves it from the start. He purchases it at, you know, at a, at a good price. He even casts uh, Young and Smith in, in a role there. They appear at the very beginning of the film, uh, which was uh, quite uh, witty really on, on Kramer's part. And the movie tells about two prisoners who escape from a prison truck uh, after a day working on the chain gang. And the prisoners are Sidney Poitier, who will then star in two more Kramer films, and Tony Curtis. Uh, and Tony Curtis at that point was going to kind of moving away from just his good looking uh, sorts of characters and playing more realistic uh, uh roles. And so this was an important film for him as well, but it's seen as Sidney Poitier's breakthrough role. So they escape, they're chained together, and it tells the story of their trials and tribulations as they are on the road uh, trying to gain their freedom. And they both 
uh, have to confront their their racism, their anger at each other, uh, dealing with you know being uh, pursued by the sheriff and uh, a posse and and dogs, um, and they go through all sorts of uh, hazards and end up getting free of uh, the chain of you know that's holding the two of them together, but eventually. Um, they're running and uh, they are on the way to freedom and the character played by Tony Curtis can't get onto the train that they are escaping on. And Sidney Potier, you know, reaches out for him um, and ends up leaping off the train to be with him. So this was seen as a metaphor for American race relations right at the point of the civil rights movement uh, picking up steam. So we've had Brown versus Board of Education, which, of course, declared segregation unconstitutional in 1954. We've had the Montgomery bus boycott in 1955 with Martin Luther King, uh, you know, coming to the fore there. Uh, 1958 is uh, the Little Rock, Arkansas uh, school integration crisis. You know, it's the same year that the Defiant One comes out. So people are talking about the civil rights movement. They're talking about race relations. You know, they're talking about you know what should be done. And here we get a film about a black man and a white man chained together. So here, metaphor for we are in this nation together, um, and confronting you know mutual hatred, confronting white racism, confronting um, these. Uh, you know, uh, oppressions and coming to a place of sol- uh, at least solidarity or bro- brotherhood. Um, and so it was a very powerful metaphor for what was going on in the United States at the time. And everybody would agree that's his breakthrough film as a producer director. So he had made two other films. He directed two other films before that. But it is the defiant ones that makes Kramer's name. Um, and I mentioned, you know, really is, is Potier's uh, breakthrough role. And it is watched by, um, by everybody. It's reviewed positively, uh, uh, pretty much across the board, except for maybe in some left leaning journals where they felt it was a little too optimistic. Um, and of course there were also criticisms on the right, uh, that, uh, linked civil rights to communism. Um, so, you know, it's kind of on, on the very edges, there's some criticism, but in general, it fits the mood of the United States at that point in time that you know, civil rights is the, the way the country is uh, needs to go. And then we're with On the Beach, which is another one. That one, as, as obvious probably as some people thought the Defiant one was, um, one was for what it was trying to point out, On the Beach is even more obvious because, as you've already pointed out and we've already discussed, it's about uh, the aftermath of a nuclear blast, nuclear war. So uh, that one, I can imagine, was a little bit more obvious, even more so than the other ones. But uh, yes. it was another situation where he took a topic and decided, well, I'm going to make a serious film about this that I'm not going to pull any punches on it. And uh, that was very unusual for the time period. I mean, obviously, since then, we've had a number of films that have discussed, you know, the aftermaths of, of, of nuclear war and things. But uh, at the time, I can imagine that that was not something that the average person wanted to even think about in some ways. That, oh, I think that's absolutely right. And he was, uh, you know, quite concerned about uh, nuclear weapons, you know, the buildup, uh, nuclear testing, because, you know, there's many, uh, you know, fears about radiation and fallout. Uh, and he talked about being a parent, because at that time, he had two young children, you know, talked about, uh, you know, the concerns that if there is a nuclear attack, you know, do the children stay at school or do they come home? Uh, you know, radi- radioactive fallout uh, had, at, you know, was uh, circulating over the Nevada desert uh, and, you know, at times even came to Los Angeles and there were alerts, you know, to this effect. Uh, so he's somebody who doesn't accept 
nuclear weapons as part of the normal way of defending the country. So he is somebody who holds to that uh, idea that, uh, you know, this is nonsensical. This doesn't, you know, this doesn't make sense. This isn't a good uh, strategy for defending the nation, you know, for national security. And now Neville Shute, whose uh, full name is Neville Shute Norway, but his pen name is Neville Shute. So his novel on the beach uh, is a is a best-selling novel in 1957 and there's quite a lot of competition to get the rights to make that into a movie Kramer wins those rights and, and pays quite a lot to do this but this becomes a great challenge because as we were talking about it's about the end of the world and if we're in a industry that is about entertainment how are you going to get people to come to a movie where every character is going to die the world world is ending and so this was a challenge and what he decided to do was to cast some big stars in the movie so he casts uh, Gregory Peck as the commander of uh, a, a nuclear submarine. He casts Ava Gardner as one of the important, uh, as the female lead and important character. He casts Fred Astaire uh, in the movie, you know, kind of playing against type. Uh, Fred Astaire is not singing and dancing, but he is a scientist. And he sells it that way, saying we put these big names uh, into the film. And all three of those actors also bought into the idea that we need to make a movie uh, that is about the you know fear of nuclear war that is about the dangers of nuclear war uh, to shape the public debate um, now coming from policymakers in Washington they are not excited about this film at all um, in fact they really don't want a democratic open discussion about nuclear strategy they would rather keep this as sort of an elite you know policy making uh, arena and so from the start, you see the Eisenhower administration at the time paying attention to Kramer's movie making, paying attention to how the screenplay is developing, uh, paying attention to how the movie's being made. And then once it's released, uh, they move quickly to try to shape the public debate about the film. And so we see uh, this film being discussed in Eisenhower's cabinet uh, meeting. Eisenhower's not there at the time. Richard uh, Nixon, the vice president, is is there. Uh, you see the uh, State Department issuing really a, a document about how our, our State Department officials around the world can frame uh, respond, a response to the film. So again, that the fact that he is able to seize the attention of you know the the highest part of our government, um, you know, and and have these real debates happen, I think is so important. And again, letters to him and letters to the editor. Uh, there's people writing to him saying, you know, I just joined a SANE, which was uh, an anti-nuclear organization. Uh, you have other people saying, I'm going to work against nuclear weapons. A churchgoers saying, I'm going to organize my church uh, to send postcards about uh, you know, that we need to oppose nuclear weapons. So I think just you, there's no doubt uh, that there is an impact from his films. And in fact, public opinion over 59, 60, 61, uh, as we, you know, really uh, is affected uh, by saying, is this the way we want to go? Are nuclear weapons uh, how we want to defend our nation? And I think, again, this is where we see both with civil rights and nuclear war and nuclear weapons, these are still contemporary issues. So, you know, here Kramer's work, his oeuvre, his films, his impact on public discussion, it still matters. Well, and especially one of the, to this day, I still remember in the, in the, in the Cold War reigniting that happened in the 1980s, where we started to get back into the concept that some believed, obviously crazily, that a nuclear war could be won and that people would live again afterwards or would continue to live, um, we see that come back. And, and even worse than during this period where the assumption is eventually, you know, people are going to, you know, the world's going to end. We're suddenly in the 80s, which suddenly, well, no, maybe we could still be alive afterwards. And wouldn't it be better if it was us versus them that we were the ones that were still alive? 
That's right. Well, and in fact, though, you know, that does occur also in the debate around the film, too. And what helps, I think, is, you know, he uh, and, you know, his team, they contact important scientists. Uh, you know, Linus Pauling uh, ends up coming out, you know, endorsing the film. Uh, so they do, you know, connect to nuclear scientists. They connect to, you know, uh, other commentators uh, to say, listen, <laughs> the, the outcome is, is not good for a, a nuclear war. Um, you know, at the same time, that is what the, you know, administration is trying to push is that a nuclear war is survivable. Um, you're absolutely right. And so this movie's pushing against that saying, no, it's not. Or if we don't know exactly what the impact is, why risk it? You know, is this really what we, do we want to experiment with the fate of the world? So it was a very challenging film. And it's interesting that you mentioned the 80s because in the 1980s, this is after Kramer's retired from Hollywood and he's up in he's, uh, Bellevue, Washington, where he makes his life for a, a while uh, kind of an escape from Hollywood or retirement from Hollywood, he actually gets involved in the nuclear freeze movement in the 1980s because he feels that the message of On the Beach, you know, again, still needs to be heard. As opposed to what was going on at the time with The Day After, for example, in which That's supposedly, you know, we got we got pretty badly damaged, but we'll be okay in the long run. Right. <laughs> that kind of right. Thing. That's right. Well, and it actually pushes against even the movies that were being made in Hollywood at the time. You know, so scholars have looked at the nuclear films of Hollywood in the 1950s, and some of them are very, well, we would consider them even war films. Um, so like Strategic Air Command and, you know, talking about uh, the military. But even the kind of sci-fi movies or the movies that are made that really directly do take on the possibility of nuclear war, they always have survivors um and so it he this film really pushed back against that uh, optimism uh and in fact you know it, it didn't do well at the box office and it even though it was highly respected uh the critical uh reviews were in general good it it opened, uh, had a worldwide premiere and opened all over the world. And, you know, we have politicians, famous people commenting on it. In the end, it was quite an expensive film to make because of those stars. And also it was filmed in, uh, it takes place and is filmed in Australia, which was quite expensive. It ended up not making, he lost money on it. Uh, and I think that was hard to have happen. Uh, but he still would hold to his principles and say, well, I'm still glad I made it. It was still an important message to get out there, even if it didn't you know, secure the box office returns we would have liked to have seen. I, I, I reasonably well have pretty good knowledge of Dr. Strangelove. And there's a part of me that wonders, did Kubrick ever say anything about On the Beach, particularly at the time that he was making that film? I don't know the answer to that, obviously, but... Uh, I'll have to go back into a couple of the books that I have on Dr. Strangelove just to see because in many ways I think Dr. Strangelove is one of those films that said, well, we're not even going to pussyfoot around about it. This is just ridiculous that you would even consider these kind of things as possible and let's just go ahead and end the world. That's right. Well, and of course, that's uh, 1964, I believe. So five years after On the Beach. And of course, that has a more ironic sensibility, right? And Kubrick's a younger filmmaker. So he's, you know, a different generation than Kramer. And I think, you know, he really catches, you know, great attention um, uh, at the time. And, you know, the movie is, you know, filled with black humor. It's still very, very watchable. Um, Peter Sellers is so uh, fantastic in that. Uh, but the the difference with Kramer, and it's only a five years difference, you know, there it's generational, but Kramer doesn't have a sense of irony. There's no irony about his filmmaking. He is a sincere filmmaker. So he he's telling these stories, you know, straight up. Uh, and I think that's also part of what happens with his critical and I think even political reputation as the 60s continue is he does feel like an older generation with that sincerity. You know, we have a new generation coming into Hollywood in the 60s uh, like Kubrick and, you know, they capturing a different mood, a different sense of the time. And, you know, Kramer, that's not his. That's not his. You know, he's he's much more of a sincere, straight up, straightforward sort of filmmaker. 
So you mentioned it already, but on the beach, how did the other three do at the box office that you mentioned, Defiant Ones, Inherit the Wind, and Judgment in November? Defiant Ones did terrifically. Um, also, he kept the budget low. So one thing he learned from he you know, the earlier films that he directed, um, and also when he was a producer, from the very beginning, what made him his career tick and work was the fact that he kept budgets low. Uh, his first few films in 1949 uh, that, that he made Champion um, and Home of the Brave, uh, those films end up making a fortune. So they were cheap. Deeply made, really inexpensive, uh, and he is able to, you know, make make good money on that, and he ends up being called a boy wonder or boy genius for making these profitable films. But when he starts directing 1955 and and then after that, he makes a couple of very expensive films. And the Defiant Ones, he goes back to that old kind of modus operandi of inexpensive filmmaking. And so the Defiant Ones is profitable, but profitable but on the beach uh, is expensive and then inherent the wind and judgment at nuremberg also lose money and where he then starts making money back is with uh it's a mad 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 <laughs> mad world in 1963 so that made a fortune um and then guess who's coming to dinner made a fortune so those are the movies that really end up being profitable and he would joke about how you know he has lost more money than any other producer in, in Hollywood, you know, but he always managed to, to, to make it. Um, and I think part of the story that I'm telling is it's really a classic sort of rise and fall narrative where you see, you know, he struggles at the beginning and he, uh, you know, uh, gains prominence as an independent filmmaker. Um, you know, we didn't mention his contract with Columbia Pictures in the, in the early 50s, 1951. It's, it's an unprecedented contract with a major studio for an independent producer. You know, so he really has this, this quite, you know, impressive rise. Um, and then we do see sort of him falling over time into the sense of movies not making money, his critical reputation getting increasingly lambasted and as i mentioned you know by the mid 70s he's retired from hollywood and and moved up to washington and he ends up never making another motion picture he makes some television uh, movies, but he doesn't make another motion picture. So part of what I was interested in was, you know, tracing that sort of rise and fall and understanding how the motion picture industry played into that, but also politics, you know, how the political mood, you know, shifted over those decades. Besides the four films too, and I don't want to forget, I want to make sure I mention this, you then discuss his uh, career. So, you know, his activities as a as you call a cinematic dipl diplomat uh you know that he actually went to the soviet union and and tried to you know he was one of those folks who believed that it, that if you did some artistic sharing that that might help as far as other things are concerned uh you know sort of like the uh <laughs> the table tennis um uh matches that were going on with with china and the idea that that's a way to to bridge gaps between two countries that might not necessarily be getting along with each other. That's right. And I think I'll, I'll you know, when you're putting together a project and you're, you know, you're looking at your materials, it is when I realized he is on the jury for the 1963 Moscow film festival. And in that role, it means he's the most prominent American at the Moscow Film Festival, and he gets the attention of the U.S. State Department, the attention of the Soviets, lots of international media attention. And I realized then, okay, this is what, to me, is making the book. And also, what is, I think, new, most new about my book uh, is this attention to his role, as you use that phrase. Uh, I like that phrase, cinematic diplomat. And I think this builds on his politics all along. You know, I began talking about that he was a New Deal liberal, you know, in the 1950s in Hollywood. He is, you know, fighting against the blacklist when he can, you know, hiring blacklisted screenwriter, uh, you know, Nedrick Young. Uh, in 1958, and then again uh, to make uh, uh, to write the screenplay for *Inherit the Wind*, 
And he also fights against uh, the Wage Earners Committee, which was a group of anti-communists who were boycotting and, and protesting and picketing his films. So he's, he's always a political figure, uh, certainly by the late uh, 50s and into the 60s. You know, that, that he's a prominent filmmaker, but he also sees himself as a political figure. And the Soviets are quite interested in him. Uh, they like his movie making. They like the fact that he has a message. They like his social realism, his his realistic style. Um, you know, it's very clear in a Kramer film who the good guys are, who the bad guys are. The Soviets really like that. Um, and we end up signing a cultural agreement uh, with the Soviet Union uh, in the late 50s. And the in doing research on the cultural agreement and the films that were exchanged as part of that cultural agreement, more Kramer films, a total of seven, went to the Soviet Union than any other filmmaker. Uh, so they really like him. And they invite him to come to the Moscow Film Festival in 1961. Uh, and then he finally is able to come in 1963. On the Beach actually has a premiere in Moscow in 1959. So he's facilitating these relationships. And as you say, he believes that the way to deal with the Cold War is to build bridges, right? Uh, not to build bombs. And he's what we would call a liberal internationalist, that if you can sit down and talk to people, if you can get to know people, if you can share with people, um, you, you don't have to have you know, hostility and antagonism. And then when he goes to Moscow in 1963, he sits on the jury. He has a very prominent role in awarding the um, you know the award the prominent award of the of the festival uh, to uh, Federico Fellini, but he does some other important things. He introduces the U.S. film that's screening there, West Side Story, which is the musical um, that uh, takes place in actually his old neighborhood um, of uh, the Middle West Side or, or Hell's Kitchen, um, and it's about you know it's an updated Romeo and Juliet story based on on uh, gang warfare that's happening uh, with Puerto Rican gangs and, and sort of white ethnic gangs. Um, and he introduces that film saying, you know, we're not perfect. The United States isn't perfect. We have problems with race, uh, but we're working toward, you know, making things better. Um, and in this sense, he uses what he believes in, which is free speech, freedom of expression, you know, looking at our social problems squarely in the face, he believed this is a way to be honest with people. Let's build bridges based on that. He disagreed with that idea that we should hide our faults, uh, that American propaganda and um, you know publicity overseas should just emphasize the positive. He didn't believe in it. He thought that's not that's not real. Um, it's not sincere, and that the way to really connect to people is to be forthright about your problems um, and to say we're going to work on them. And this went over fantastically with the Soviets, both um, the you know the filmmakers. Uh, the audience goers and many of uh, many of the officials, except for the ones who weren't happy about Fellini <laughs> um, winning, winning the uh, the prize there. Uh, but there uh, and then there ended up being a quickly they put on a screening of the defiant ones, a public screening of the defiant ones. That was sort of an impromptu, spontaneous uh, decision, as well as Judgment at Nuremberg, which is his 1961 film about Nazi war crimes and the Holocaust. And they, you know, thousands of people go to these screenings. And then after that, his movies still keep playing in the Soviet Union. And it's a perfect moment. 1960. 1963, uh, the Kennedy administration uh, is trying to forge a different uh, mood about the Cold War in the wake of the Cuban Missile Crisis, which, of course, was you know, incredibly frightening. We have 1963 right before the festival. There's the ban on um, nuclear testing. Uh, uh, that happens. That's an international agreement about uh, not having uh, nuclear testing, at least above ground. Um, and so it's a moment when we would say there's a thaw in the Cold War, that there's a chance to rethink these superpower relations. And he's right there on the ground in Moscow trying to forge really a new new discussion, a new discourse. Uh, and I, that was a, a very significant role he played. And I think something that people, you know, in general, we don't know about. Well, I think there is so much in the book that um, 
it, it, it's the way you put the amount of material you were able to have access to, especially. And that's that's one of the reasons some of these books that we're seeing nowadays about some of this during this period in particular is that uh, so much source material is now becoming available, not only on the on the uh, artistic side with with uh, the directors and the actors, but as you point out, the political parts that uh, might have been going on in the background that we didn't necessarily know about that we now can find out exactly. We can get a lot more information about that, and it makes it much easier, not easy, but obviously much more interesting to be able to pull together some of this material and into new ways of looking at um, topics, and, and in this case, uh, a, you know, Stanley Kramer. You know, even the National Archives, you know, papers are released that give us the communications between the Moscow Embassy and the State Department in Washington that, you know, talk about Kramer. I mean, so these materials are available. Um, the other, you know, kind of one of those, you know, gold mines when you find something and you just jump for joy as a historian um, is there was a Russian biography of Kramer that was published in the 70s. Uh, so, you know, that I was able to find again online. Um, and you know, I was able to have it, you know, bits of it translated here uh, in, in New Zealand. So, you know, just what, how incredible, right, that we can get those kind of sources. Um, I also was able to access Israeli newspapers because Kramer was Jewish and because of his interest um, and concern about Nazi war crimes and the Holocaust, he was covered quite uh, prolifically in the Israeli press and from a variety of political perspectives. I was able to have a researcher get access to those uh, newspapers. They're online and translate for me. Uh, so just, you know, here I am in Auckland, New Zealand, able to bring together these kinds of materials. I agree with you. It's it's a cornucopia <laughs> that we, we can't take for granted, that's for sure. Well, Overall, I, I I really wanted to applaud you for this book. As I say, I found it. I'm, that's a time period that's of interest to me too in my studies. So, and Cold War in particular. So, the the fact that we were able that you were able to put it all together and to, uh, uh, to as a study of him, but as a way to take a closer look at that period was so great. And uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me. It's the time has flown by, but. Uh, I hope people check out the book because there's so much there that I think they would find new, if even if they felt they had some knowledge or some uh, interest already in Kramer. But the, for the time period, I think it's it was it's a fascinating study. So, really, really, thank you for joining me today. Well, and thank you, Joel. This was really enjoyable. So, take care. My thanks to Jennifer for her time. Her examination of Kramer's films is interesting and relevant. This is Joel Cherney, and I will be back soon with more New Books in Film.